not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello. And welcome to the Beyond Zero radio show. We broadcast from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and are syndicated on the Community Radio Network. You may download our podcast from the internet at either 3cr.org.au or bze.org.au or using any common podcasting app. Our guest today is Dr. Sarah Perkins. Dr. Perkins was awarded her PhD from the University of New South Wales and now works as a climate change researcher. To be more specific, Dr. Perkins focuses her work on heat waves, attempting to determine the natural and human components of regional climate change in Australia. Dr. Perkins has a website called sarahinscience.com and another called scorcher.org.au Dr Perkins can also be found on Twitter at Sarah in Science and that's no gaps and no underscore, just one word Sarah in Science Dr Perkins joins us over the telephone today. How are you Sarah? I'm very well thanks and you? I'm very well too thanks for asking We like to begin these interviews by asking each guest to provide an autobiography. Perhaps, Sarah, you could begin by telling us about your experience as a climate change researcher. Um, Yeah, sure. So it's very interesting. I really enjoy my work. I really enjoy researching heat waves. And the way I fell into researching heat waves was just noticing that we've been seeing a lot more lately in the news. And quite naturally, of course, heat waves are ultimately weather events, they occur on very short timescales and usually over a a small region. But I had wondered if we had worked out a way to properly measure these events and after measuring these events, could we work out had they changed over time, had we been seeing more of them, had we been getting hotter events, are they lasting for longer, That, that sort of thing. And the research I found was basically there was no single way to measure these events. So if we can't measure them properly, then how can we detect any sort of changes? So my research set out to work out a way on how we can measure these events, not only for myself as a climate scientist, but also invent ways to measure them that were helpful for people in impact circles. So people who research human health, for example, or ecosystems and the effect of intense heat on these sorts of systems. So that's what I've been doing. That's, I guess, a bit of an autobiography in terms of my research. As a climate scientist, it's a very interesting time since there's not really that much funding for us at the moment, unfortunately. And it is a quite a topical issue for various reasons. So I think when we tend to step out of our research circle, we tend to cop a bit of flack from certain members of the public, dare I say climate sceptics. And that that sometimes can be quite uh, hard to deal with is the wrong word, but it can be challenging, I guess. Is there one international standard definition of heat waves common to Australia and everywhere else? 
Short answer is no. The best we've come up with is a prolonged period of excessive heat. And that's basically the definition you'll get if you check Wikipedia. I know because I've, I've looked. And that's the only thing we can really agree on at the moment because different people want to know different things about heat waves. Some people want to know about how relative humidity works with com- combined with uh, intense heat. Some people are interested more in how long heat waves are lasting versus their intensity of those particular events versus how many we're getting in a season. People who are interested in bushfire management are sometimes interested in are we seeing heat waves occur earlier than they used to or are they occurring later than we used to, which can affect the length of the bushfire season as well. So because everyone's interested in a different part of a heat wave or a different characteristic of a heat wave, we can't really agree on the best way to measure them. And as, on top of that, we need really good daily data to measure these events. As I mentioned earlier, heat waves do occur as weather events and they, that means that they occur at daily timescales. So the climate data that we need to calculate heat waves appropriately has to be at a daily time scale. And in places like Australia, we've got a pretty good data record, but for other places across the world, like India and Africa, we're really lacking in that quality of data that we need. So it's really hard for all of us to sit down everywhere and try and agree on a definition. We do sometimes try and do that, but it's, it's a challenge. I can understand the challenge. The definition that I use as a layperson, I think, is from Sky News Weather. And I, if I'm correct, they say it's five consecutive days where the maximum temperature is at least five degrees Celsius above the average for that day, which is obviously not very useful for people who use the imperial system, such as in America where they use Fahrenheit. <laughs> yeah, actually, that definition, that's the, def- the, the definition, the, the reason why that... Sky News would use that definition is that's the definition that the World Meteorological Organization uses. And that index used to be one that we used quite often. This is going back about 10 years ago. But work that I've done in my previous jobs and many other researchers actually worked out that that index is actually quite useless. One reason being is in some parts of the world, we don't actually get temperatures that are five degrees above the mean. So thinking tropical climates, think places like far north Queensland or Papua New Guinea, those temperatures don't even exist. So that index, yet they still get extreme heat and they get you know, uh, morbidity effects because of extreme heat and high humidity. So that index is null and void. On top of that, you don't actually need a heat wave to go for at least five days to have any sort of measurable effect. A lot of the reading I've done in terms of impact studies has shown that two days is sufficient or at least two days, usually about three days. So in my opinion, I would say that definition is defunct and it's a bit outdated. Okay. Well, I'll have to uh, write to the weather people on Sky News Weather. But uh... <laughs> The Bureau of Meteorology have in recent years come up with their own heatwave definition, which is a bit complex in terms of the, well, the mass they use is quite simple, but it's actually quite complex to sit down and explain in a 20-second grab. But it does look at how hot a three-day window has been compared to some sort of climatological background and also compared to the prior month. And then if it's been really hot compared to the prior month and also that climatological threshold, then they declare a heat wave. So they've kind of moved beyond that old definition and are now using one that they think is much more practical. And that's actually the index they now use for their heat wave forecasts, which they've been running for the past two summers. And those heat wave forecasts have actually been doing exceptionally well. So we're getting, in terms of, you know, practical definitions, while we haven't all agreed universally on what the, what the definition should be, the one that we're using operationally in Australia is actually doing a really good job.
What is the historical frequency of heat waves? Well, I guess that depends how you measure them. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's, heat waves don't, you know, they don't always occur every year. There's a lot of natural variability behind heat waves. So, for example, in parts of Australia, we get more heat waves when it's an El Nino summer, particularly over parts of eastern Australia and in Queensland. Some years when, for example, we might be having an El La Nina summer when it's a lot of rainfall, we don't actually get any. So there's this real high variability from year to year. On average, though, if we did take an average across all possible years, we'd probably see that we'd get, depending on where you are, anywhere between one to three heat waves a year. And due to an increased concentration of greenhouse gases, how much has the probability of heat waves occurring increased? Oh, <laughs> that's a really tricky question, and I can't give you a, an, a single answer on that either. It does depend on the event that you're looking at. So I don't actually have any figures in front of me right now, but... Um, so okay, actually, no, I, I can give you an example. So we actually had a heat wave over much of Australia last year in May, and as we all know, May is late autumn, and I'm not sure about what it's been like in Melbourne, but we've had a pretty cold start, a pretty cold autumn this year in Sydney. Anyway, last year, though, we actually had quite a warm autumn and we had this heat wave at the end of May. And some analysis that I did found that that sort of heat wave with that intensity lasting for about three weeks, it was, over most of Australia, that now occurs five times more often than what it used to without greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. But that's just for that one particular event. So that's five times more likely now than what we would have seen if we didn't exist. But perhaps for another heat wave, maybe, say, the heat waves that occurred over Melbourne during the Australian Open a couple of years ago, that would have been a different different change in likelihood. And that's the thing. We, we have to do it for every single event. There's not one way of saying, oh, they've all increased by 10% or they've all increased by 50%. We can't do that just yet. Are any areas more prone to heat waves than other areas? Uh, it depends what sort of characteristics of heat waves that you're looking at. So certainly Melbourne, they get some wonderfully hot heat waves, but they don't necessarily last for very long. Whereas if you go further up north in Australia, particularly around tropical region, regions like Brisbane, they're not usually as hot as what we get in Melbourne. Sometimes they feel hotter because there's a lot of, um, a lot of humidity in the air up there, but they tend to last for a bit longer up there too. So in terms of the really intense heat waves, certainly the south southeastern parts of Australia are particularly prone to really hot heat waves. And they're generally the ones that will kill, unfortunately, more people because they're just so hot that people that are quite sick or quite elderly and can't cool down, they're more susceptible to being affected by these events. You cited there a difference between Brisbane and the southeast corner, and I was wondering how much of that is to do with closeness to the equator or how much of that is to do with the topography where Melbourne doesn't have ranges protecting us from desert winds, whereas Brisbane has a bit of hills that can protect them from the desert winds? Oh, that's a really good question. But I, it's more to do with um, how close Brisbane is to the equator and, and, and also the synoptic systems that govern that part of the country. So where Melbourne is, it's right near what we call the, the blocking high region. So what happens during a heat wave is you'll get this lovely, great, big, dirty high sitting just off, just southeast of, of um, Melbourne. And what it'll do, it'll sit there, it won't move, and it pushes all this warm air for the interior, from the interior of the continent into Melbourne. And that air, by the time it reaches Melbourne, is really, really, really hot. Whereas Brisbane, 
yes, they do have a bit of a mountain range protecting it, which might have a slight effect, but it's more pushing. If you had a high sitting just off the coast of Brisbane, it's probably going to push more moist air into Brisbane, uh, which obviously doesn't have the same effect of heat on that particular region. And also those, those sorts of persistent highs sitting off Brisbane aren't as common as the persistent highs we get sitting off Melbourne. Mm-hmm. So compared to greenhouse gas emissions, how culpable are deforestation and urban heat towards exacerbating heat waves? Oh, that's another fantastic question. Uh, there's a lot of research going into, I'm not so much sure about deforestation, but certainly in terms of the urban heat island effect. So, you know, you knock down trees, you build buildings, you build cities, and it actually has a really bad effect because what's really important for human health when we're experiencing extreme heat is nighttime temperatures. We need cool nighttime temperatures to kind of rest our bodies and our bodies to get over that heat and hopefully prepare for the next day that could be really hot. But with the urban heat island effect, we don't get that. The heat stays in the system for longer, temperatures don't go down to what the usual nighttime minimum would be, and we suffer because of that. In terms of deforestation, I, it would be a similar sort of effect, I would, I would say, because if you've got more trees, they, they work to keep the ecosystem cool. That's through um, like the latent heat transfer and evaporation. So they actually try and keep some moisture in and keep some of the heat out. If you knock down those trees, they're obviously not going to perform that function anymore. And so you've got more hot air sitting at the surface. And that's, you know, that, that largely contributes to having a strong heat wave. I'm, I'm not actually sure if anyone's studied, and I could be wrong, and I'd be happy to be proven wrong here, but I'm not actually sure if someone specifically studied what happens if you change an area from completely vegetated in forests to a grassland and what effect that has on heat waves. That'd be very, in terms of modelling studies anyway, that'd be a very interesting study to undertake. Okay, well, I try and think of interesting questions. <laughs> that is a really good question. <laughs> okay, so again, my information might be a bit out of date, but I understand climate theory predicts as concentrations of greenhouse gases increase, the daily minimum temperature shall increase more than the daily maximum temperature. So the question is, does it then follow that heat waves will be more common in winter than summer? That, oh, wow, I'm actually really liking your questions. They're really challenging. Um, and that's not out of date. That's a really, that's a really modern question. So the, the evidence that we have so far is, even, is only making that argument stronger. So our cooler temperatures, both during night and both during winter, are warming at faster rates both of, of temperatures that occur both during the day and also during summer as well. So we're seeing the, the temperature range during the day decrease and we're also seeing the temperature range during the seasons decrease as well. Don't get me wrong, summer's still warming, it's just that winter is warming faster. So that certainly increases the likelihood of having heat waves during winter as well. Now I'll make clear that my, the sort of definition of heat waves that I like to use does make it possible for heat waves to occur during winter. And a lot of people don't necessarily get that at first, but heat waves are relative to the time of the year. So a heat wave in summer certainly feels a lot hotter than a heat wave in winter. But a heat wave in winter is still, it's still hot for that time of year and that can have other effects, particularly on, on plants and crops and things like that too. So if we, if we will be seeing more heat waves in winter, they still may not be as hot as the heat waves are feeling in summer, but they're certainly a lot hotter and there's a lot more of them for that particular time of year. You are listening to the Beyond Zero radio show. 
Our guest today is Dr. Sarah Perkins, and we are discussing heat waves. Okay, Sarah, for how much longer shall experts always say we cannot link one single weather event to anthropogenic climate change? I think for a long time yet, because we can't tell you whether or not that event would have occurred absolutely without us. We always had heat waves in the past. You know, they, they always occurred. We live, you know, no, no matter what climate you live in, there's always been extreme events. They were rare. Extremes are rare by their very definition. So they didn't occur that often, but they still occurred. And it's just really hard to kind of tease out and say, oh, this heat wave, yep, that's 100% due to climate change, whereas that one on the next week wasn't 100% due to climate change. It was 50%. It's really difficult to tease that out. I think, though, at one stage, we'll be able to say a heat wave this hot never occurred without humans actually existing. I think we're almost there to say, okay, well, we're not sure, you know, we, we can kind of say that this heat wave may have occurred before us, but how hot this heat wave is, is definitely because of us. So that's, that's kind of two different questions there. I particularly believe that the latter question will be able to say that within the next uh, conservatively in the next 30 to 50 years, but I think even before that, I think soon we're going to see heat waves so hot and extreme events so so hot that they wouldn't have occurred without us actually having the Industrial Revolution and emitting all those greenhouse gases. I think that's one of the advantages for me of just not being an expert. I can make these claims and no one can sort of take <laughs> away my credentials. Um, so... <laughs> You've got to be very careful. It's the same thing with tropical cyclones. Like we've always had tropical cyclones; they've they've existed without us. Um, And the science around that still isn't completely settled. But perhaps at one stage we may be able to say, well, yes, we've always had tropical cyclones, but perhaps now they're more intense, or we see less or more of them because of us. So it's it's, yeah, it's 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 the same for every other extreme event. Mm -hmm. So summer heat waves are often described as a silent killer culpable of more human deaths in Australia than any other weather phenomena. What prevents people from engineering human shelters to withstand extreme heat? Uh, wow, your questions are amazing. That's, that's, that's also a really good question. Um, I'm not actually really sure because I think part of it, I would think, is we're not actually aware at the time how extreme the impacts of a heat wave may be. So... You know, we have this forecast for our heat waves coming on and we know those forecasts are, are really quite good now, but they still don't know who exactly will be affected. Yes, generally the elderly and the sick, but you can't pinpoint to a particular person and go, you, 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 you know, you're going to be really affected by this. So that, that, may be, that may come down to it is working out who exactly, who takes priority. Do we put all elderly people uh, in, a, in, a, in a shelter that needs to be put in or do we just put out the ones that we think are most at risk and then, you know, maybe other people therefore are harmed more. I, just, I also don't think that people are well aware that they, are, they do kill. I've actually read a study recently, I, I can't remember the exact number, but the amount of deaths due to intense heat since the mid-1800s has been well over 5,000 or, or, or some ridiculous number like that. No one would even think of that because no one dies or, is, or very few people die straight away when a heat wave occurs. It's a delayed reaction. So that's maybe, maybe because it's not something that people necessarily see happening straight away they don't really know what to do to um to create these shelters it's, it's not it's not front and center of their mind 
Okay, well, it's probably a good time to remind listeners that they need to uh, cool off overnight during the heat wave. Yep, stay cool. Stay in it. You know, if the heat wave is forecast, don't go outside. Stay inside, and you know, you may not feel, particularly if you're, you know, if you have trouble cooling down or if you're a bit elderly. Make sure, regardless of that, you have a, you know, you have ways to keep cool. Drink enough water, and you know, if, if you can use some sort of way to cool yourself down, like an air conditioner or a, or a fan, and A climate contrarian may argue, within the spectrum of altruism, there are higher priorities than climate solutions. So where do you draw the line at putting climate change as a priority for civilised action? Goodness me, (laughs) I can think of one particular contrarian that would say just that, but I won't, they shall remain nameless. Um... I can, look, in some ways, I can kind of see how the average person comes to that conclusion. You know, you, you have an earthquake in Nepal or the heat wave that's going on in India right now, and, you know, it's, it's happening now. They need our help right now. But, oh, climate change or next summer's heat wave, well, that's, that's, you know, we don't worry about that right now. But we can only put it off for so long, and we've, we've well and truly passed that point. We've been warned about climate change since well before I was born, and we still haven't done much about it. So I don't think... You know, I, I think you can do both. I think you can invest into mitigating impacts um, in the long-term future, so mitigating the impacts of climate change, and also, you know, helping uh, disasters or, or crises that are going on right now. I don't think you need to make a judgment call on either one or the other. I think you can do both, and I think that's what we're doing wrong. It's not the future's problem; it's today's problem. And if we don't, if we don't help try and fix it now then it's going to be 10 times worse than it needs to be in the future. And within climate solutions, is proving climate change is real and immediate a higher priority than renewable energy sources, land care and shelter withstanding extreme weather events? Uh, Not for me, no. It's what I do. I... Sorry. Yeah, it's what I do. I'm a climate scientist, so I research how bad things are going to get. That's that's my job. Um, but I also think that we've got far more, you know, above and beyond the amount of evidence that we need to do something about it. So in terms of social priorities, the priority should be let's do something about it. Yes, we still need money and still need research to research what's going to happen. But we've passed the point of going, oh, you know, should we sit back and wait and see what happens? Things are already happening. We know we, we, know we have a, you know, a good idea, a very good idea about how bad they're going to get in the future. We need to start investing money and investing money into solutions. And I particularly support any sort of you know, investment into green energy and adaptation. And what does the employment market look like for climate researchers at the moment? pretty dismal. <laughs> well, it's not just climate researchers that are hard hit. It's any sort of science research isn't looking so great after the past couple of federal budgets. Um, so I myself, I'm only on a contract at the moment. I'm on a research grant, which I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to have. And it's, it's quite a prestigious grant. So I'm, I'm very fortunate. But that doesn't secure me a, a long term job. There's not very many jo- jobs in academia, um, climate scientists or otherwise. So it's either move overseas or just pray that something comes up in the next few years before my my research money runs out. Um, On top of that, the sort of next phase of grants that I would, you know, naturally go for, they've just been slashed as well. So 
they're already extremely hard to get. We all have to have our bids assessed by a, a, um, a third-party panel and then they choose which ones they think are the most appropriate and the best ones to fund. Um, and the amount of grants now, I think, in the next phase have dropped from 200 per year to 50 per year. So they only had a 10 to 15% success rate. When there was 200 available, having 50 available, well, you do the math. <laughs> it's, not, <laughs> it's not very likely that anything will get funded um, despite you know, how good your science may be. So it's a bit unfortunate that that's the situation right now. I'm, I'm forever hopeful that perhaps in the next few years things will change for the better. Um, but yeah, it is quite concerning. Science and research isn't really valued in this country anymore. And whether it's climate science or chemistry or geology or, or what have you, uh, we, you know, we, we need we, we need blue sky research to make new discoveries and to find new things. And it's just not being valued anymore. Mm. I was speaking to a lady at 3CR who also writes the science magazine for children in Australia and she's got the same problem with uh, funding cuts and I hope I'm not saying that publicly and offending anyone but I have a similar problem with the Arts Council where we've just lost mm-hmm. our, half our budget as well. Well, it's just, well another, another, you know, it's, it's really depressing that what happened to CSIRO, they lost a quarter of their funding. And so I used to, I worked there for two years when I was living in Melbourne, and it's just so sad to see that they've just done all this fantastic science, not just in climate science, but the whole of CSIRO covers all of the sciences and more. All of the work that they've done, you know, it's 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 been cut back. It takes so long to have the, that research base build up, and so CSIRO was really well valued, and that's just been taken away in a couple of years. And you know, what what does that what what message does that say to to, to kids about how we value science and research and and critical thinking. That doesn't say anything. I actually had someone say to me the other day that their girl has, you know, seen me t- on TV and heard me on radio like, like we are doing today. And she's like, oh, I want to be like her. I want to be a scientist like her. And, I, you know, that was really pleasing to hear. It's really nice that I'm inspiring young women to be scientists. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, goodness, the poor thing. She's going to have such a tough road ahead of her. And I don't want to discourage anyone from doing science. But it's, it's coming to that. What, 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 what sort of message are we sending our kids? and you know, anyone else who enjoys this sort of industry. Most people are leaving the country to research overseas, and that's, you know, you don't, I, I don't want to bring my kids up thinking that science is, you know, is a worthless enterprise because it's not. Yeah, science is very useful. So would you encourage high school leavers to study climate events as a career? I would. I know, I think, oh gosh, this is a tricky question. It's really, my personal morals are coming into play here. I would, like just, and again, not just climate science, but science in general. It's fascinating, you know, working out how things work. Why do things work this way? If anyone has a natural curiosity, science should be at least something that they attempt to explore. And that's what really satisfies my natural curiosity. I was always asking my, my year 11 and 12 chemistry teacher but why why does this chemical have these properties why do they interact like this and I think I drove her a little bit insane but you know she encouraged me to to study science at uni because I was always asking why and finding out the reasons behind things so certainly any sort of child that I would come across that had that natural curiosity I would encourage I would I guess in some ways perhaps um, you know also guide them to think broadly about you know going overseas to study and getting experience particularly at, at, in the sort of um, situation we're in now in this country. But I wouldn't necessarily say, oh, science, there's no money, there's no jobs in science. I would never say that. 
because I still believe that, you know, whatever someone's interested in doing, they should be encouraged to go down that path. And, you know, particularly science, because we do need more critical thinkers out there and people who ask why and find the answers to things that we don't know. And can you tell us about your Scorcher website? Uh, yeah, sure. So actually, at the moment, that's being relative. Uh, that's being redeveloped. So I've got it's, all, it's almost done actually. So it should be looking a lot more pretty than it currently does, and hopefully having a bit more of a functionality to it as well. Um, at the moment, it, it's, it tracks in almost real time heat waves across the country. So at the moment, on the left hand side, you have this map, uh, and it's the areas on the map that are shaded red indicate where a heat wave has recently occurred over that part of the country. And then there's also these little red dots. You can click on one of those, and those dots are actually a particular station. And if you click on that dot, it will show you the temperature record for the last three months and highlight in red where a heat wave has recently occurred on that station. And then there's a few summary statistics explaining uh, how hot the hottest heat wave was for that particular station or how long the longest heat wave was and when it occurred. So it's kind of giving people the, the, the tool and the ability to actually explore heat waves across Australia. They can work out... You know, if, if a heat wave has just occurred in Sydney, for example, oh, that was, a, you know, we've just had a heat wave. Was that the hottest heat wave ever, we've ever had? Was it the longest heat wave? Um, and a bit of fun fact for people who might be listening in Sydney, the longest heat wave we've actually had was in May last year. And as, you know, this, is, this is what I was saying earlier, that heat waves can occur during the cooler times of the year. And that, is, that example is one of them. So it was, it was warm relative to that time of year and it actually lasted for, I think, over two weeks. So that's, that's the idea behind Scorcher. I've done all this work researching how heatwaves should be measured, whether or not they've changed, and looking particularly at Australia for those changes. So what use to that is to the general public if it's just locked up in a, in a science publication somewhere. I wanted to kind of have a practical application for my work, and, and this is pretty much it. And for listeners, that's scorcher.org.au. And um, Sarah, I'm going to have to ask you to to repeat where your websites are and your Twitter account and where people can find you over the internet. Yeah, sure. So my personal page is sarahinscience.com. That's Sarah spelled S-A-R-A-H, inscience.com. And my Twitter handle is just at Sarah in Science. So feel free to check out my website. Uh, I used to do a lot of blogging, but unfortunately I've kind of lost track of doing that um but i do intend to hopefully get back into it at some point um and yeah feel free to follow me on twitter or send me a message and ask me any question thank you for teaching us more about heat waves and thank you for joining us today sarah my pleasure i hope i hope someone or some people have learned something tonight (laughs) you have been listening to the beyond zero radio show brought to you by the Climate Solutions Organisation Beyond Zero Emissions. To find out about all we do, please visit our website at www.bze.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.